Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. When the parents called me on this case and told me that Drew had, you know, started communicating with them, I called Tommy up immediately and I said, look, I'll never forget this case. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Steve? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Um, I'm excited about today's show, not only because we're talking to a fantastic trial lawyer and Randy Scarlett uh, and talking about a great case, but we're also talking about uh, one of our old friends, uh, you know, who tried this case with Randy, uh, uh, the legendary Tommy Malone, who we always like to trade Tommy stories. Right, right. One of our first, our first guest. Right. And one of our only in-person interviews, too. That's right. That's right. Exactly. He was kind enough to take us, uh, have us down to his, uh, down to his house in Florida. And we had a great time interviewing he and Adam. Absolutely. Well, Randy, I didn't mean to cut you out of the conversation. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, well, we're so glad to have you on here. I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, tell everybody a little bit about your background so they can know who we're talking to. Uh, Randy is a, a fantastic trial lawyer from San Francisco. Uh, he's the uh, principal partner of the Scarlet Law Group, and you can look him up at scarletlawgroup.com. Um, not only has um, uh, Randy uh, uh, tried a number of cases with, with our uh, good friend who passed away last year, Tommy Malone, uh, he also, I believe, did you started out with Melvin Belli, is that right? I did, 1981 with Mel, so tried, a, tried, tried quite a few cases with him as well. I'm sure there's some experiences and uh, some stories there too. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> I, I, in Tommy's book, uh, I think I gave the author of his book a quote. I said, you know, I've tried cases with both Belli and with Malone and Malone wins, hands down. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> that, yeah. is, that, is a, uh, that is a great accolade. Um, well, so let me just tell everybody a little bit about your background. Uh, I mean, so as Randy said, he's been trying cases uh, for a long time all over the country uh, based out of San Francisco. Uh, what I saw uh, on your um, uh, in your past results, I mean, not only have you did you have a $1.2 billion verdict back in the 90s on the uh, Marcos human rights litigation, but in the past 10 years, have uh, eight traumatic brain injury verdicts uh, uh, between the uh, uh, between 10 million and 49 million. Um, and the one we're talking about today is the one that you tried with uh, Tommy that resulted in uh, in a $49 million verdict. Uh, twice named Trial Lawyer of the Year by the San Francisco Trial Lawyers Associ Association, uh, named as one of the top lawyers in Northern California by San Francisco Magazine, uh, a, a perennial super lawyer, uh, AV-rated lawyer, um, top uh, um, uh, best lawyers in America, Law Dragon. Uh, you're also on the uh, a board member of the California Brain Injury Association and part of the uh, Traumatic Brain Injury uh, Law Group, uh, which does uh, fantastic work when it comes to uh, to representing uh, uh, brain injured um, um, people. Um, so again, Randy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, sure. You're very kind. Oh uh, well, you know this this uh, this case with Tommy uh, that we're about to talk about was really a, uh, a hard fought case. And uh, I was just so pleased, as was Tommy, uh, to get this verdict for this young man because there was no one more deserving. And as we talk more about the case, uh, I've got some special things to, to bring you up to speed with. 
Yeah, well, I, I would love to hear that because, uh, you know, not only you shared with us uh, a PowerPoint you used that showed had some video of, uh, of, of his therapy. Uh, I also saw on your website that uh, what looked like a settlement video uh, where you're interviewing his friends and family, his doctors, and uh, it's just uh, extremely moving. I mean, it's just, uh, was a tremendous young man and uh, who had just something uh, terribly tragic uh, happen to him. and. Um, you know, so to watch the the um, you know progress that he made through therapy, and I, I would I would encourage everybody to go to Randy's website and uh, and check out the um, uh, the video in the and I guess I should tell everybody the name of the case, which is uh, Drew Bianchi versus Gordon Trucking, Michael Dema, and Samuel Bimbella, uh, or Bimbella, I think. And um, as I said, the total verdict was a forty nine million dollar verdict. Uh, more than $49 million verdict. There had also been settlements with the state of California uh, prior to that for a a road defect uh, claim for $10 million and then a claim against the trucking company that employed uh, Samuel Bimbella uh, for two million dollars, and that, uh, and I think there was a claim there, and we'll talk about this as we go. That that uh, he may have not been within the course and scope of his employment. Um, but just a, a, a quick overview of the facts, and, and Randy, feel free to correct me where I get it wrong. But the, a quick overview of the facts is uh, Drew Bianchi was twenty-one years old. Uh, by all accounts, a star um, had four point grade point average throughout high school. Uh, was in the very top percentile of his class uh, that I think had more than 500 students in it, uh, had, had just transferred to uh, University of California, Davis, uh, where he was going to be studying um, microbiology, I believe, and uh, was planning on be- uh, entering the pre-med program and becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and three other friends were uh, going to go on a camping trip and they were on Sonoma, in, in Sonoma County, and they were on State Route 152, uh, an area called the Pacheco Pass, also known as Blood Alley. And um, they were following a tractor trailer. Uh, he was sitting in, the, in a Toyota Avalon, sitting in the left rear seat, and um, in front of them was a, was a tractor trailer uh, and a flatbed truck coming the opposite direction, heading east. Uh, looks like it crossed the center line uh hits the tractor trailer and then impacts um the avalon that that uh, drew bianchi was sitting in uh, pretty much exactly where he was sitting uh there were some photos of the vehicle and and it, it's a wonder that he even survived uh the collision uh because there was so much damage to the vehicle right there um he did survive but was in a coma for uh 21 days uh, and had just a, uh, a, a tremendous, uh, a terribly tremendous uh, brain injury. I think it was described that he had uh, injured both of his temporal lobes, both of his frontal lobes, had a shear injury, a shear injury, had injured his brainstem and his thalamus. So he was essentially, uh, com- uh, at first they described him as being in a vegetative state. Uh, he was a quadriplegic, um, just a, a, a terrible injury to this uh, this really promising uh, young man and um, a big part of the case, it, it was fought on a number of sides, and we'll we'll talk about this in a second. But a big part of the case was showing um, how much um, treatment that he was going through, how much rehabilitation that Drew was going through, and the progress that he was making, even though uh, it was it was slow. But um, 
but just a, a, a terrible tragedy for Drew and his family who just seemed like tremendous people. And, um, and, uh, uh, you know, this case uh, is a tremendous re- result. So, uh, so I know that was a little bit of a long-winded uh, overview there, but I think I got most of the facts right. Does that sound right, Randy? Yeah, you got it right. On May 3rd of uh, 07, on uh, Blood Alley, it's Pacheco Pass, State Route 152, two woefully inattentive truck drivers, one that was sleep-deprived and the other one that had been on a cell phone for 30 minutes prior to and at the moment of impact, collided at the center line uh, of State Route 152. Um, One of the trucks that was operated by Bimbella, the flatbed, uh, hit squarely the back door, the back rear passenger door where Drew was sitting. And you're right, had there not been, and I guess this didn't come out in any of the material I gave you, had there not been a California Department of Forestry truck at the scene, at the time of the wreck, which the truck had, Firemen that were paramedics, had they not been there, Drew would never have made it. That's what saved his life. Literally at the scene, paramedics were there at the time of the collision. Mm. Wow. So they were able to they were able to extricate him from the vehicle. It had it not, you know, and initially, and I'll never forget the day I got the call on this case, because my son was exactly the same age as Drew. And it was about four days after this wreck occurred that the parents called me. And you know, I thought at the time it would have been more merciful had this kid died. Right. But as we'll talk about in a little bit, um, sometimes we trial lawyers do some good because Drew's doing wonderfully today. That's fantastic to hear. I mean, that really is fantastic to hear. Um, I, I want to talk start out about talking about some of the um, at trial, some of the um, the problems, let's just say it that way, some of the issues you had to overcome. And some of them were uh, from the fact that there, this was known as Blood Alley. Um, So obviously there had been a number of collisions along this roadway. It was a dangerous roadway. And and you had brought a claim against Caltrans, the state of California uh, DOT, um, for a, a dangerous roadway and had settled with them shortly before trial, which, uh, you know, is, is a fantastic work that you're able to get it resolved. But at the same time, uh, Gordon Trucking, uh, who was the, tr- the truck in front of uh, Drew Bianchi's car, and then uh, uh, Mr. Bimbala's truck, which was the one coming the opposite way, uh, used that as a significant part of their defense in the case, I assume, um, because, yeah, of, because of the claim against California. So um, in California, to prove a dangerous condition on public property case, uh, it's all statutory. And I won't bore you with the details, but one of the things that you have to cover is you have to have notice. You have to show that the defendant state of California knew or reasonably should have known of the kind of uh, uh, wrecks that could occur there and that they had to have had an ample time to be able to fix it. So because there were all these, these earlier wrecks involving center lines, we had that notice provision, which could be very difficult to show on, on these types of cases. But you're right, we, we settled it about two weeks before trial um, for $10 million. And so by the time we got to trial, everyone wanted to apportion fault on the empty chair, which was Caltrans. And literally, uh, Counsel for Gordon Trucking called my uh, roadway design safety expert in their case in chief 
And, you know, we had to have many a sidebar about how far I could go in crossing him, given that I had put on his deposition testimony three weeks before where he was testifying left and right to all the dangerous conditions on this particular roadway. Right. Uh, you know, it was a very delicate cross. And I, and I say that with quotation marks around the word delicate. Uh, but we, we were able to play the percentage of, you know, positive things that could have come out of this for Caltrans in discussing their fault. Uh, and that, together with a theme about the defendants wanting to just blame the damn roadway, kept uh, the percentage fault at California capped. We, I think it was 5% was all right. that the jury found them to be at fault. Right. I should have said that when I was uh, saying that there was a $49 million verdict, The uh, it was apportioned, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but uh, 60% to Mr. Uh, uh, Bimbella, who was driving the flatbed truck that, that crossed the center line, uh, 35% to Gordon Trucking and Mr. Demma, who was driving the tractor trailer in front of uh, Mr. Bianchi's vehicle, and then 5% to the state of California. And then the way I understand that works, which is different from Georgia, uh, is that um, for economic damages and $31 million uh, for medical expenses and 4.5 million for lost wages, economic damages are joint and several. And then uh, non-economic damages like pain and suffering, which I think were 13.5 million in this case, uh, those would be apportioned. Is that correct? That's right. Um, we joint and several for all special damages and uh, yeah, non-economic are uh, strictly by the percentages the jury awards and collectability. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers, we're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right. So if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. 
and tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I wanted to ask on this Caltrans issue, um, was there an attempt to use previous allegations in the complaint or to cross your clients about having sued Caltrans? And if so, how did you handle that? Well, Drew obviously couldn't testify. Um, he couldn't right. speak. So we did We did bring uh, Drew up. Uh, Tommy was, you know, it would have cost us a fortune. Tommy had his plane out and sent his pilot down to Bakersfield. And with much effort, we brought Drew up. We were very concerned about bringing him into the courtroom. We didn't want to make a spectacle of him. He's not an exhibit. He's a human being. Right. And it's very, very, very difficult. Um, I, I'll never forget that, though. Uh, we did wheel him in in a wheelchair. His parents brought him in. And, you know, I don't want to say that he reacted. But when we said, hi, Drew, this is your jury. This is the jury that will be, you know, uh, you know, de deciding your case. He almost seemed to respond. And so, no, they couldn't question us. Uh, because we didn't have a plaintiff witness. We right. put on, of course, the parents and we put on uh, uh, who and, and both mom and dad served as guardian ad litem. We put them on the stand and we put others, friends and family members on the stand. But they couldn't ask them about the lawsuit because they weren't parties to it. And so we kind of dodged that bullet. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and Yvonne's asking that because we've had that come up in cases where we've resolved a case with 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 one defendant, and then they want to point out, uh, and so it, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of work on the front end to make sure yeah. that they can't do that. That was a purely yeah. selfish question because right. I'm just always <laughs> looking for ideas about how to handle it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, well, uh, I wanted to go back. I mean, so you know, and, and we're we're certainly going to talk about uh, his injuries uh, a lot more. One thing I, I I did notice from watching some of the um, look like the day in the life video and some of his rehab uh, videos is is that while you know he didn't uh, have a lot of function, it did seem like he kind of recognized what was going on around him from his, some of his eye movement and some of his uh, his hand movement that he was able to regain as it went on is is as far as his condition, was he, did you have a feel for how much he could really uh, recognize what was happening around him? We, we really didn't at the time because uh, he couldn't communicate. And he had uh, one of the big medical issues in the case is he had low grade hydrocephalus, which low pressure, I shouldn't say low grade, low pressure hydrocephalus, which is very rare. And so when I put the neurosurgeon on to describe all of his injuries. And we used, you know, everyone uses this stuff. I don't remember whether it was high impact or whether it was uh, uh, metavisuals or who we used for our exhibits, but we used some great computer graphics to, to get across to the jury just how, you know, how bad this kid was hurt. Um, but he also had to describe the, the low pressure hydrocephalus and how he was able to shunt it because when it's low pressure, it's just the obvious, uh, opposite of high pressure. With high pressure, you put a shunt in and the, the fluid, the CSF fluid is gonna immediately drain. With low pressure, it's just the opposite. And yet it builds up. And so it was applying pressure and it was, it was you know, it was a potential ongoing damage, brain damage that was occurring in him. So we really had some, some explaining to do and some teaching to do with respect to the injury. Of course, the defense brought in their doctor deaths. It was uh, Dr. Right. Kush who works with Chevelle and, and the, the 
project, the life expectancy project here in the Bay Area. And Kush was a, let's see, uh, see if I can get this right. He's a JD that's never practiced law nor represented a client. He's an MD that's never treated a patient or, and so he basically wanted to come in and, and tell us what the literature was on this case with a prognosis that plaintiff had, I think at the time he said six, maybe five years remaining life. Drew's alive today. And while at the time uh, we didn't know whether he could communicate, if you ever wonder whether money and uh, the, the funds that a jury and the, our system uh, ultimately give to an injured individual, whether it can have meaning and benefit, Drew now can communicate writing with his left hand. Wow. So this wreck occurred in 2007, I think. Well, I don't think the the verdict came in on my wedding anniversary on uh, 2009, right? <laughs> which made for a pretty decent wedding anniversary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and Drew, so 2009, we're at 2020. That's 11 years, and he's going strong. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable. But I lost track of your question. I, no, I, I actually I did want to talk to you more about this. I had one of the um, I, I'm blanking on the name of doctors. I had one of the doctors from that group uh, in a case last year that we deposed, and uh, and basically they just uh, you know put it in their statistical uh, uh, you know studies, and then they just you know churn out some numbers and tell you well you know your your client's not going to live very much longer yeah. uh and re- and really can't support their uh the basis for why they're saying that or even the studies they're they're um depending on uh for those so how, t- just talk about that briefly how you addressed uh crossing uh, uh Dr. Kush so um it, you know it's this so-called statistical approach to to prognosis of future remaining life and what they do, as you said, is they look at certain characteristics. Can he scoop? Can he crawl? Is he G-tube fed? And they go through all these, these different characteristics or, or uh, you know, residual problems that an individual may have. And then they categorize them based on data that they put together. And so the way we approached this entire case was with a the theme of the value of therapy, number one, and number two, an individual approach to medical attention. I mean, don't he's not a statistic. And none of these folks, first of all, can tell you, based on a reasonable degree of medical probability, when anyone's going to die. I mean, unless they're right. holding a gun in front of you and they say, I'm going to shoot you, they don't know. So what we did is we brought in the treating physiatrists, physical medicine and rehab folks. We brought in uh, actually the owner of the Center for Neural Skills down in Bakersfield, Dr. Mark Ashley. And I mean, he's running a post-acute brain injury program. That's what he's done his entire life. So I'd rather have him explain to us where these folks go and how they recover with a particular treatment regimen than someone that's looking at statistics. And that's exactly how we approached it. It was to humanize a plaintiff, you know, and and make his treatment real and, and for the jury to understand the value of therapy. It made them want to give more money. If you saw the uh, the short 30-second or 45-second video that we put together, I use that in closing, okay? I, Tommy did primary close. I did rebuttal close. Mm-hmm. And the defendants were stupid enough to go all the way through damages. So I got to talk about them again in, in <laughs> rebuttal close. But I also got to show that video. And the video really dealt with the value of therapy, right? I mean, so in the beginning, this kid was a, uh, a tennis star at his high school. 
And so what we did was we told the parents when he first entered the post-acute brain injury programs, we said, just take a cell phone in and film. Film the same therapy every day. And, you know, after about a year and a half, one of the therapies was they throw this, it's not a, it's like a balloon at him. And he had a badminton racket. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, he couldn't move his arm. He couldn't do anything. Uh, you know, a million dollars later with therapy that was going on, he'd whack that ball out, you know, and no one had a question about whether this kid deserved a chance. Right. I mean, that that's what drove them to award the money that they did. Because after all, what we were asking for, I mean, it's the terrible price of brain injury today. Um, it led me, this case led me to testify before the California legislature because we had worked out some ways that, you know, Medi-Cal, our state system, could save money if they put a little bit more therapy in in the beginning to wean right. these people from, from, you know, their trachs or their G-tubes or whatever. They're going to save it in the long run on what they pay. And so anyway, they, it, you know, this was a real challenge in the case. Tommy kept looking at me. He said, you know, Randy, you could fix a major slum in a major city for this kind of money. You know, and so it was not easy to ask for these dollars. But, you know, after they saw how this how Drew was progressing, I don't think anyone had a question as to whether they were going to give him that chance. Well, and I I always wonder about these, uh, you know, so-called life expectancy experts, uh, you know, how well that actually works at trial, because it seems like it has a real big chance of just pissing off the jury saying, right. you know, okay, so why don't we just give up? Why don't we just throw our hands up in the air and not do anything for this young man? Because he's not going to live long anyways. That's essentially what the defense is arguing in that. And, uh, and so, you know, go ahead and give the, the defense a discount because he's not going to live long enough. I mean, that's, that's what you're basically asking the jury to do. So I, I just see them as really potentially getting very angry at that. Hopefully getting very angry at that. I, I know I do. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, if he's hurt so bad, he's going to die. Who hurt him? Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's, it's like who, who hurt him? So I, I think it I, I think you're right. I think it, it, it backfires a lot of times. I didn't I, I really didn't get that from this jury because they were just so happy at the end of the case to be able to help him that I didn't get a chance to, to really go back through specifically and ask right. about that testimony. So I can't really help you there. But I think. I think it you're sounds right. like you had an anniversary to get to. Well, we <laughs> we took we took mom and dad across the street to a restaurant and uh, got them a very nice bottle of wine, uh, and then said goodbye. We paid for their dinner, said goodbye. They understood, and yeah, I took my wife back up to the to San Francisco and out to dinner. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. Well, I did think that was one of the striking things and reading the press that was kind of coming out after this verdict. I thought that was really striking that you had said, you know, when commenting on the verdict, um, the point that you made wasn't about, you know, how how right you were on the liability side of the case or how how angry the jury must have been or anything like that. It was about you had emphasized basically the significance of the injury and what it takes to truly treat and try to rehabilitate from an injury like this. Yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, um, TBI is a horrible, horrible injury. I mean, God forbid you lose your arm or you lose your leg, right? There's a prosthesis there. Mm -hmm. And granted, the prosthesis isn't it's It's not anywhere near the original limb, but it's there. There is no prosthesis for the brain. So, 
you know, when you talk about jurors not wanting to give general damages, you know, or jurors wanting to focus on on special damages and, and not really compensating here, it's what, and we didn't have neuropsychologists in this case because he was too, you know, he was hurt too right. bad. He couldn't have tested anyway. But if it's what neuropsychologists call metacognition, how we think about who we are. So you're mm -hmm. literally taking away a sense of self from that individual. And so I, I you know, I, I think that the, I did an increments of time argument for the general damages, but I think the jury got what had been taken away here from from Drew. And that's why they they didn't hesitate on the general damage aspect of the case. Um, it's it's a, I think all these cases, you, you have to be clear in trying these cases, or at least I try to be, that there is a value to that therapy. And it's not right. just big dollars and cents. And liability, hell, the biggest offer we had on this case prior to trial was $5 million. And Gordon, and that was from all the defendants. Uh, other than Caltrans, who we settled out with. Um, and, you know, Gordon Trucking had focus group this case ad nauseum. And they told us they'd never lost a focus group, that, that no, no one had given them any percentage fault at all. And Tommy and I said, well, you weren't asking the right question. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting. I have, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I started out uh, uh, with a, a defense lawyer who's very well known here in Georgia named Joe Freeman. Uh, I think he actually tried some of the Eli Lilly cases out your way. Um, but he, he told me when he was brought in for the defense to do focus groups, that if he wasn't getting a plaintiff's verdict, in those cases, then he wasn't he wasn't doing it right. He wasn't he wasn't trying the case right because he should be able to show the defense how they can lose the case. I mean, that's what you want to learn from focus groups. So the fact that they were coming back every time where they were winning kind of makes you think, well, maybe they just weren't really, you know, thinking about how this case is going to get tried. Yeah, well, and I have to tell you that um, Tommy, in, in all fairness, uh, we shifted about halfway through uh, our case, it wasn't a major shift, but we shifted our focus on the big rig driver. And so this is kind of a, a very interesting uh, point. Uh, there, there were two points, really. Um, first, as I said before, there was a California Department of Forestry fire truck immediately in front of the big rig. OK, and that's what saved Drew's life was the fact that those guys were there. But what had happened was there was enough space in front of that California Department of Forestry truck that as Bimbella in the flatbed came his way across the center line. OK, that forestry truck was able to move to the right across the fog line and miss Bimbella. What it turned out is that the big rig was following too closely behind that Department of Forestry truck. So as the Department of Forestry truck moved over, the big rig didn't have any time to do the same. So we had him in violation of the, the three second, well, it, Gordon Trucking said 10 seconds, eight to 10 seconds of following distance. You should be that many car, truck lengths behind the vehicle in front of you. And the jury agreed that had he been, had he had that space, he could have avoided the, the flatbed, and that's where they found liability. The, the other thing um, that sort of came to us, Tommy and I uh, 
rarely uh, we, we work hard when we work together and and we play hard, but we work hard. And when we're in trial, we're, we're working. So we're not playing. But I, I have to tell you, there was a Friday evening where we decided we would check out that Crown Royal. And right. we got a, a, a nice <laughs> we got a nice strength going and we were staring in our war room. We were staring at a big blow up that we had of skid marks that were on the roadway. And Gordon Trucking wanted to say that their vehicle, their big rig had never crossed the center line, that they were in their own lane of travel and that they were going the speed limit. Well, as we, and, and during the trial, they had their own exhibits, which we had in advance, which showed where the skids that they attributed to the big rig were, and they were all in the, its lane of travel. Okay, well, what we found out in staring at this picture with the crown royal in our uh, in our hand, are that really the skid marks that they were relying on to place him in his lane of travel resulted when they towed the big rig out of the ditch up onto wow. the roadway. So if you looked at the pictures before the CHP got there and before the tow truck were there, the skid marks were over here, right? And then you looked at the picture after they pulled this big rig off the roadway and you see that it had mnemonic brakes, the engines weren't running, so they were locked, and they created skids that the defendants were relying on. Now, I suspect we would have figured that out without the Crown Royal, but it sure <laughs> helped me hurt. That's right. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob, or Liz, or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. To be honest, when I was first looking at the, the facts of this case, I was like, well, you know, the, the, I, I, there is an argument to be made against Gordon Trucking, but it's not the easiest argument um, because it, it looked like they had stayed in their lane. I didn't realize that there was evidence that, that they may have come across the center line. Right. As well. Right. But but they wanted to attribute those skids to Bimbella, not to them. 
but the ones that they relied on resulted clearly from the towing and because they're not there at, you know, at the right. time the CHP got there, they're only there after the tow truck got there. So, and they put a big cable onto this truck to, to pull it across the road and out of the ditch. And of course it generated skids. Right. Right. Wow. That's great. That That's a great finding. I'm glad you had that crown Royal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we hooped and hollered a little bit that day. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, so I, so I have to hear. So how so you come back that next Monday and how does it how do you roll it out? How does it play out? Um, we rolled it out on we waited, okay? And mm-hmm. we didn't bring it in our case in chief. We brought it in their case with their expert. And it was a gotcha moment. <laughs> yeah. All right. And, and I have to uh, Tommy did that. And and I it it was just so well played. That, oh man. Um, yeah, that's one of those moments that, uh, that you just love when they happen at trial. Um, you kind of love them, but they're also the ones where I feel so third person yeah. uncomfortable that I also want to like duck under the uh, oh, yeah. table. Yeah. Well, it's not, it, and it's not like when they, when you're, when you're trying to pull it off in front of the jury, it's not like you're not nervous about how it's going to happen. You're just, uh, you know, you're, you're hoping it, it, it happens the right way. And that's why we work so hard to do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Tommy always said he had a guiding hand in all of his cases well, this was a, a guiding hand, foot, leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, one thing I also didn't hear and I wanted to find out. So, um, so Mr. Bimbella, it, it sounded like he may either was tired or had fallen asleep. And that's why he had crossed the center line. But um, his employer, which was Salazar Construction, Construction, who you settled with uh, before the trial, uh, was claiming that he was not within the course and scope of his employment. What was what was that about? So he was working at a construction site, um, and he got into a fight with his. I think the testimony was he got into a fight with his wife, and on the phone. I mean, she obviously wasn't at the construction site, and so um, he decided that he was going to leave the job site in in the company truck. He was going to leave the job site to get home because of this disruption he had in his marital uh, situation. And so he he wasn't supposed to be driving at the time because he hadn't done enough his hours. He he was he he wasn't I I don't think I think he was over the hours that he. I saw that he had only stopped for three hours when he was supposed to spend the night or something like that. Right. Something like that. I, you know, there are a lot of trials been under the bridge since I did this. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) um, Yeah, that that was it. And so he they were making those noises and but they only had a two million dollar policy anyway. So what we were really fortunate to do is to settle out with his company for policy limits, but keep him there. So the carrier that settled out didn't, you know, didn't demand a release for him because they had been contending he was not within course and scope, but they did provide a defense to him. So we had him sitting there through the whole trial with counsel. We couldn't ask for anything better than that. There was no empty chair there. Right. So that was just, I mean, I got to tell you, sometimes I get lucky and that was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, speaking of uh, the focus groups, did you and Tommy uh, focus group this case before trial? We did. And I'll tell you something really surprising. Um, we learned that uh, older people 
thought it was really, really, really bad that the Gordon trucking uh, driver was on his cell phone, but that absolutely no one under the age of 30 cared at all that he was on his cell phone. I mean, it was hands-free, right? So no one cared at all. So we dropped that entire, I mean, we talked about the fact he had been on the cell phone for 30 minutes prior to and at the time of collision, but we did not bring up, we did not bring experts in on the issue of cell phone use and distraction. We didn't do it at all. And it, you know, the defense, I think one of the, even though they hadn't cross complained, Bimbella's lawyer did make a big deal about it. And just true to our focus group, I don't think the the younger jurors carried, cared at all. So we learned that we, I didn't, we didn't focus group the case for damages. Um, we, we knew the case was worth a lot if we had liability, but we did look at some key issues like that. Cell phone use, um, uh, fault between Bimbella and Gordon Trucking. We, we focus group those issues to death. And like I say, especially on the cell phone, it, it, was, it got a debate going within the camps. Debbie Malone, Tommy's wife, mm-hmm. uh, thought that we should hit that cell phone issue. She thought that we were nuts to let it go. My wife said, or my son, who's now a lawyer in my firm with me, at the time was in, let's see, 2007. He must have been, I don't know, he was in undergrad or high school. I guess high school. He said, don't even think about it, Dad. Don't bring up that cell phone issue. So it, it got a pretty good debate going within our camp. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's really interesting uh, to find out. And I, I mean, I, I do think that the hands-free makes a big difference uh, between somebody who's talking on their cell phone and holding it up and maybe doesn't have both hands where they can use them versus hands-free. Right. Um, but that, that's, that's really interesting to learn. I, yeah, what, I mean, but the, the one thing, you know, I, a, a, another bit of information, he was not just on the cell phone, he was getting directions. Okay. And, you know, if you're getting directions from another driver, I don't care if you're hands-free or not, you're thinking about where you're going. That's right. And you're not thinking about where you're driving right now. So I, I you know, yeah, it was hands free, but, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When your mind is on other things, you're looking around to see if you see, you see things they're telling you, you're not really, you know, watching the road the way you should. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one thing I read, and I, I, I like this a lot, the, the, for the demonstratives for your, for what happened in the collision, uh, you had a, you just used a magnetic board and, and, uh, we're just moving vehicles around instead of doing something like an animation or what was the, what, what, what made y'all decide to do the, um, uh, the magnetic, uh, uh, you know, vehicle cutouts on the, on a board versus something more than that. You know, I gave a talk, um, on demonstrative evidence and I show all this beautiful computer graphics that I've done in other cases where we've literally done nighttime visibility studies and show the point of no return and then computerize the rest of the wreck, right? Because you got to stop or you're going to be in that wreck. Uh, And I've shown how Tommy and I actually, in another case that we did here in San Francisco, took an entire intersection and lasered the whole intersection and then uh, animated the whole thing and and placed the actual, this involved a, a train and we placed the, the train there showing the, the lights and how the train was going against the lights and everything else. The problem we ran into in this case was that there were several witnesses that many of them in other vehicles that mm-hmm. were either behind or, in, well, I guess they were all behind the, the subject collision. And as we deposed those people, no one had the same story as to where everything was at. 
So we weren't going to be able to, it would have been difficult to lay a proper foundation for any animation. And so we're struggling. And Tommy says, well, Randy, what we used to do is use magnetic board. <laughs> and so we got this magnetic board. And with each different witness, we'd have them in front of the jury place where they thought the vehicles were and then show what they estimated the vehicle speeds at, you know, by literally riding on them. Now, the mistake we made, and it was great, and it worked flawlessly. I just wish I'd gotten court permission to take a picture of how each witness put it up there, because when it came time for closing argument, right. I'm like, Jesus, we got nine different <laughs> witnesses that all said different things. And for the life of me, I'm struggling to remember where everyone put everyone on that board. So I, it worked really well. I do it in a heartbeat again. I don't think that we need to spend all the money necessarily that we do on these cases. But I will tell you, if you have different people that are placing things in different areas, yeah. take a picture of it because yeah. it, it becomes hell when you get to closing. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I love that idea, and um, and I, I get real nervous about using animations, especially of a of a collision at, at trial, because. You know, as 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 good as you try to get it, if there's one mistake in it, it you know your expert, whoever's going to be laying the foundation, just starts getting beat up on it. And if you don't, you know, use an animation that's sort of locked in that you've spent you know thirty to fifty thousand dollars on, uh, you know, you can change as you go and and you know make sure you don't have those mistakes in there. Yeah. Well, and related to that, I mean, we talk a lot about both when we're getting ready for our trials and when we're talking to people on the show about how helpful it is when you have a witness who can do something, who can either show the jury something or, or get, you know, get off the stand and, and, and explain something, move something. So it had to be helpful for those witnesses as well. Yeah, no, it, it really was. And, um, I think that what you are able, the differences between all these different witnesses was not great, okay, which makes it even more difficult. But it was enough of a difference that foundation would have become mm -hmm. really a problem on the case to do it otherwise. And, you know, if there was a case that probably justified spending a lot of money on something, it was this one. Although I'll tell you, if you can get the job done and just as effectively without spending the client's mm -hmm. money that way, why do it? Just just for the impact. It's not worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one thing I just wanted to ask you, and, and, you know, I think you've sort of described this, but was there was there a reason why you didn't decide to pursue punitive damages in this case? You know, um, I find that if you get a jury upset, that they're going to take care of you through all the way through your verdict. Right. Um, we probably could, the, the real culpable behavior was Bimbella and we weren't going to collect it anyway. Right. Um, of course, at the very beginning of the case going in, you don't know that, but um, I, I just, uh, I, you know, Tommy was not a big proponent of punitives and, and did not believe in this case uh, that we necessarily should have pled him. And, and I, I think it, it could have looked like we were overreaching. I mean, yeah, right. the damage to this, this young man was, I mean, it's life changing. It's it's horrible. But um, at the same time, they compensated him. I mean, the, the one beautiful thing I can say is that whatever technology comes up, he can do it. He can afford right. it. I mean, and, and that's going to help him throughout the course of his life. And as I said before, I mean, I can't tell you what a big, you know, we do these cases, we get results, we try to help the clients by setting them up with the right kind of 
of uh, investment tools and everything else so that they can can have the resources they need for the rest of their lives. But in many cases, we move on, right? We just move on and we lose track of it. When the parents called me on this case and told me that Drew had you know, started communicating with them, I called Tommy up immediately and I said, look, I mean, you know, because like I said, it was doom and gloom from the defense as to this kid's prognosis. And for there to finally be communication between him and his parents, I mean, that's just, that's something oh, yeah. that, you know, so we, Tommy said, well, wait a minute, Randy, let's verify that, you know, I mean, because the parents, in all honesty, they would tell us stuff all the time about him because they wanted to see it, yeah. right? They were such loving parents. They really wanted to see it. Uh, so we were, we didn't at first believe that maybe he was communicated, but maybe it was wishful thinking on mom and dad's part, but it turned out it was true. And that was, that was one of the things that really, uh, that's why I'll never forget this case. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So obviously this was a, a catastrophic brain injury, a life altering brain injury, but I do want to talk a little bit about how you uh, approached, uh, you know, proving up the injury, proving, you know, the damages to him and, and then the decision uh, to have him in, in, in the courtroom. Uh, I think uh, you said that you had him in the courtroom for, I think, 45 minutes or something like that. But we, we always have that discussion, you know, about which cases do you have your client there for and which ones you don't. Um, so I'd just like you to talk a little bit about how you approach this. And then, and then I'd love to talk more about how he's doing, uh, how he's doing today, because I, uh, I love stories like that. Yeah. So, um, I can't remember if this was the case. I, I think this was where they did an in limine and I think the judge limited me, um, 
I don't know that we had him in there the full 45 minutes. Um, there was no reason for it. Like I said, I, he's, he's a human being. He's not an exhibit. And we didn't want to dehuman. We didn't want to, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but we didn't want to make a spectacle out of him. Yeah. Um, the jury had a right to see who he was. They'd been hearing about him. I mean, uh, the life care plans for his future care were, were unbelievable. Um, and in addition to that, one thing I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm, you'll probably want to know this, the defense life care planner had basically made an argument to the jury that because Drew will have enough money, he will get discounts on all of his future care needs. So I brought a motion to strike and the judge literally struck the next day all of that testimony about discounts from the defense life care planner. But but that's how far they went and how far they reached in trying to limit what injury or what compensation he got for his future care. But getting back to him, um, you know, I, we debated whether or not we were going to bring him up at all. And like I said, it, even though Tommy had his own plane out here, it's it's from San Jose to Bakersfield. It's probably an hour flight in uh, in a plane like Tommy has. Uh, it's not cheap to to do that, and you know to do it any other way to medevac him up here right. would have been probably forty or fifty thousand dollars. And so we really thought uh, hard about whether we bring him up, whether it's worth it financially, because it's going to be a hit on his case. Um, and we decided that that as long as we could wheel him in, not make him an an exhibit. And so what we did was we had, I think our physiatrist on the stand at the time. And when he got wheeled in, um, some of the therapies were demonstrated so that we could get that PM and R doctor off the stand and down with him so that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just an exhibit. And like I said, I'll go to my grave believing that when, when I was saying, hi, Drew, this is your jury that he did react. Tommy said he thought he reacted. I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at him, so I'm pretty close. But I think the jury saw that just as you did from watching the video, that stuff's going on behind those eyes. And so that was worthwhile having them see it, because if you're going to ask for that much money in future care, they got to see that it's not only having an impact, but it's not happening to someone who's just never going to benefit from it at all. Right. And uh, so anyway, that's my two cents on, on bringing them up. And and you mentioned some of the, um, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the demonstratives you used to show his, uh, the the injury he went through and, and, and how much it affected them. What kind of demonstratives did you use for that? So obviously he had been, uh, you know, had series of CTs and MRs done. um, And we, pulled together, I worked with our neurosurgeon and we literally pulled together uh, all of the film that we could get our hands on and then started picking key ones to show the hydrocephalus, key ones to show uh, the diffuse axonal shearing. This this was a case where, believe it or not, shearing was visible on T1.5. Wow. You know, you did, we didn't wow. even think about T3s. You could see the shearing because it was, it was, it's not diffuse. Right. It was focal and it was it was visible on on the images. So then we went to one of the companies um, that we all go to, I, and they animated some of those films. And so with, and the, and then of course he had a craniotomy, uh, so decompression evacuation. 
we wanted to demonstrate all that. So we had the animations done where the burr hole went in and, and the, the evacuation of the blood. What was really cool was, because I've done that in a bunch of craniotomy cases, but what was really cool was this hydrocephalus. We wanted to show the placement of the shunt and how this neurosurgeon did it. And I can't remember, it was Mark Eastham was the, um, was the treating neurosurgeon. I've known Mark for many years. He's back in Boston now. But um, I think he said something like, okay, to the jurors. He, like, I'd ask him, you know, what his name was, and he'd tell me to shut up and sit down. And then he'd look at the jury, <laughs> and he just, I think he used an analogy of, of like, hair pl- clogging a drain in a bathtub or something like that. I mean, he just was a personable, down-to-earth guy that could take neurosurgery and turn it into, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, he made it so simple for everyone to understand. And he was so self, I mean, I think he, I think he said that um, a neurosurgeon is nothing but a guy, a a woman or a a man that handles pressure. That's all we do is we deal with pressure. We're like plumbers, I think he said. And so when you got experts like that, when you've got someone that can talk to a jury in down to earth words and not be full of oneself and really kind of show what they've done to help. Uh, He was able to take those scans as well and say, okay, well, over here, though, his brain is remarkably well. So here's where the hit is. Here's where the hydrocephalus comes into play and where you've got pressure. But the reason that he doesn't have seizures is because of A, B, and C. And here, look at this brain. This brain is relatively intact over here which portends for, you know, recovery. And so one of the things that we dealt with is the defense wanted to say that on a terrible TBI case like this, after a year, you've peaked. Whatever recovery you're going to have, it's over with, right? You've plateaued. You're not getting any better. The literature was just about to change on that. So we actually got testimony in prior to the literature that, no, we're showing now that there is recovery long beyond beyond one year in these cases. And that was pretty key because it, you can imagine not only did they have Dr. Death, but they, they're doing everything they can to make sure that jury doesn't think awarding money for future care is worthwhile. Right. And so if he's plateaued, he's plateaued. And that became a real big issue in the case. Um. Uh, you know, I forgot to ask you, th- this case was uh, tried in Santa Clara County. That's, uh, is that San Jose? Is that? It, it is San Jose, but I have to tell you, you know, a lot of engineers. Uh, it's, right. not, it's not known for its verdicts. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is ha- ha- what kind of uh, venue is it as far as uh, conservative versus or, or you it's know. Pretty, it, yeah. It's pretty conservative. It's not San Francisco. I can tell you that. It's, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, and it's not Alameda, you know, it's right. not Oakland. But uh, they're starting to get some good results down there now. But in 2009, there'd been nothing like this. I mean, I have to tell you, I, I called our local uh, legal newspaper, which is the recorder. I, I, I guess you guys have a daily journal or you have right. a, something. The daily that, report. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I called them after the verdict. Um, Tommy, I'll tell you this. Tommy had to leave when the, when the jury was deliberating because he had a, another case he was trying in Georgia and he had, he was picking a jury when the verdict came in. And so um, we got the court's permission there to, uh, to interrupt jury selection or whatever he was doing back there. And then he got <laughs> on the phone with us to hear the verdict come in. Oh, and, he, like on, in the courtroom. Yeah. 
Oh, that's and awesome. It, yeah. So he heard that he heard the verdict, but, uh, what was I talking about? Where'd you take me on that? <laughs> <laughs> we were we were talking about uh, Santa Clara County and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and what type of venue it was. Yeah, so I called the recorder to tell them that we got this result. And, I mean, there's dead silence on the other. I mean, it was total disbelief. No one had heard of a verdict in this range coming out of Santa Clara County ever. And so it took them a while to realize that I was who I said I was, and this was actually for real, <laughs> right. and it was a verdict. And uh, at any rate, yeah, but I I couldn't help thinking of that. When the verdict did come in, Tommy was on the phone. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Wow. So with, a, with a, a venue that has a lot of professionals in it like that, and, and, and I think you said a lot of engineers, how, how did you approach uh, jury selection and, and, um, and, and you know, what type of juror were you looking for? Well, uh, in this case, Tommy picked the jury. Um, I was I was assisting in terms of my you know uh, notes on the yellow stickums. I still do that old style of I, I haven't I, I don't type efficiently enough to be able to use uh, any of those apps that help you with jur- jury selection. Um, right. We we were not looking for uh, we we were more concerned with the liability aspects of the case. Yeah. So we wanted to stay away from engineers that would think that they would know more than our accident reconstructionists and our and our folks like that. And that's tough to do in Santa Clara because that is Silicon Valley. That is where you've got all of those software engineers, um, hardware manufacturers, all that stuff. We ended up with a pretty diverse group. It was, uh, you know, what we were looking for um, were retired people down through to uh, people in their mid thirties. We didn't want a lot of people younger that were down there um, because they, it, especially in that area, they tend to be really conservative. Right. And we, and we got that. We got a pretty, I can't remember what the makeup of the jury was, but I do remember I was, that Tommy had done a great job and I was really happy. Yeah. So um, one of the things I read in some of the the post trial uh, um, news or news coverage was it seemed like uh, Gordon Trucking uh, was still you know saying they didn't do anything wrong and the only reason they were in the case was because they were the deep pockets. Uh, was that their trial strategy and at trial were they saying that this is greedy lawyers going after deep pocket type thing? A lot of that. Yeah, well, yes, they did. And they and they did some other stuff during trial. You know, this was an AIG uh, case. We had multiple layers or Gordon Trucking had multiple layers of AIG insurance. And so as they typically do, they had one group of lawyers work the case up. And then at the last minute, they bring in trial counsel who tries the case. And the trial counsel that they brought in were very competent lawyers. They were very, very, very good lawyers. And I have nothing really bad to say about them uh, throughout the course of the trial. I was happy that they came in late because this was not an easy case to get your hands around. I mean, it it sounds easy, but it, it took a lot of time. There were more than once Tommy and I said, you know, we've got our entire offices, both his and mine, working on nothing but this. I mean, Tommy brought out uh, paralegals. Uh, I don't know whether you know D. D was out here. He brought um, uh, a lawyer with him, um, and you know I had my associates with me and my office that was out here. It took a lot to put this case on, um, and to come in, I couldn't fathom coming into the case 
you know, a week before trial right. to try it. It's too much to get your hands around. Mm -hmm. But they did bring themselves up to speed rather quickly. Uh, it got sort of ugly during the trial. Um, one of the things that, that Gordon Trucking did is that the moment this wreck occurred, the driver got on the phone with dispatch. Dispatch had, and I don't know how, you got to understand, State Route 152 backed up. It's a two-lane highway. This wreck took both lanes out of play. And so there's traffic that's backed up forever in both directions. And we saw this somehow, and I don't know whether they helicoptered this guy in, but somehow they got someone in there with a total station set up. And so the day of the wreck, I mean, before the family had hired lawyers or done anything, these guys are out there with the CHP officers and they're using this total station to get skid marks, to get everything down, all the evidence done. When we showed up at that expert's deposition, uh, he put out like, I want to say 15,000 photographs that he had taken. Oh, man. Yeah. And I mean, I you know, just to sort through this stuff at a deposition was mm -hmm. gamesmanship. There's no way we could go through all the photos. And we'd ask him, well, which pictures do you rely upon for this opinion or whatever? And he wouldn't, he, he wasn't working with us to give us right. that stuff. And he just threw it at us, you know, to take it with him. At one point during the trial, though, when it, there was a, you know, in most trials, you get a shift where you just feel it, where mm -hmm. you, it, it feels right. It feels like the jury's got it and they're, they're floating with you. And I think that that counsel, and I'm not going to name them, started to become pretty concerned. And this is getting pretty close to closings, okay? But it's definitely in the defense case because they weren't buying what they were selling, okay? The jury was not buying what Gordon Trucking was selling. And a comment was made about Tommy, and it was really unprofessional. It's like Malone will tell you that over there yonder, you know, or something like that, really being demeaning. So when Tommy got up for final close, he let him have it. I mean, he, let, he says, you can talk all you want about their total station and being out there. And I'll just be over here yonder, but over here yonder is going to show that Gordon Trucking's at fault for this, this wreck. <laughs> and, and the jury just, they loved him they, and they got it. And then, I, like I said, on final close on rebuttal, the fact that I got to go back through all of the damages uh, after Tommy had done it and go through it, all of it once again, uh, the moment that I sat down, uh, counsel for Gordon Trucking wanted to take us outside and talk settlement. I mean, the, the jury, uh, the moment I sat down, they they were, they really, for the first time, wanted to talk settlement. So it, where it got nasty was afterwards. Yeah, in the press. They, right. they, but, you know, they weren't coming across that we were greedy lawyers before because I think no focus group, like I said, had ever found them to be at fault. Mm. So they weren't, they, they did attack Tommy but they weren't really hitting us until afterwards. And afterwards, it all came out. I mean, they got one of the defense lawyers wouldn't even talk to me, you know, after I'd done an interview. He, he called up and he said he was going to make sure that, that I wasn't in, you know, this organization or that organization. I said, I'm already in a boat. You can't keep me out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, we're seeing that more and more. And I guess for our listeners that, that don't do um, a lot of trucking litigation, uh, I, I've actually got a, a good friend uh, who's, who's with a defense firm here in, ten, here in town, and he's part of uh, several trucking companies' quick response team. And he'll go out there, he's a lawyer, he'll go out there with uh, an accident reconstructionist and a safety director, and they're out there within the hour. He'll get, he tells me he'll get calls at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Uh, and, they, and they've got to be out there at the scene. Um, so, I mean, if you're thinking about taking on a trucking case, know that the uh, the defense is, is going to be out there almost as soon as it happens or expect yeah. them to. And, it, and it's scary. When you get to that person's deposition, if you get it, the amount of material that they put together and the advantage that gives them early on is something else. It's, a, yeah. it's an uphill battle for us. And it can re and you know the thing I really find frustrating is especially if they have somebody who's a former police officer and he may know he or she may know all these police officers that are out there and so you know they'll subtly start swaying the police officers you know who are investigating the uh, the collision and 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 then you've got that uphill battle to fight too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, well, Randy, this has been just a, a, a great discussion about uh, about a tremendous result. But I, I did want to give you a chance. How so? Tell us how uh, Drew is doing now. I, I really uh, would love to hear that. Yeah. So Drew um, has his own home that his parents bought down in Bakersfield, and he has twenty four seven attendant care. But he is becoming more and more independent. Um, as he's now using, as I said, he can communicate through his left hand. He was right-handed, so he was dominant right hand. He can communicate with his left hand. And last I heard, they were doing, uh, you know, work with him through, he was either being trained on or they were seeing if they could train him on some sort of computer communication uh, apparatus. And I, you know, all I can say is that he's healthy, he's happy. Uh, I had another uh, catastrophic case uh, up here that we recently resolved, and Drew's parents brought Drew up to meet with the family because, you know, it was a post, the the young man was terribly injured, had to have a craniotomy, was in much the same condition that Drew was, and so to have Drew's family come up here with Drew and meet with this family to let them know what they had to look forward to and not to give up and everything really, really helped. Oh, yeah. So he's doing well. That's, that's fantastic. Um, well, Randy, uh, we, we've talked for a long time about this case. Is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners have heard about uh, the Bianchi versus Gordon trucking case that we haven't uh, had a chance to talk about? No, I think, I think we covered, uh, you know, like I said, that, that there's so many moments in trial and, and this one was, was a ways off. I, I just thoroughly enjoyed uh, working on this case with Tommy and Tommy and I go, you know, way back. I mean, from the early eighties uh, and we had always threatened each other that we do a case together um, and we never did. And we, then in 2006, we did our first one in San Francisco, a uh, woman that we represented by the name of Celia She, who was hit by a, uh, bus making an illegal left-hand turn up on the top of Telegraph Hill. And the second case that we tried was the Bianchi case, which and Celia She was a $26 million case. Mm-hmm. Bianchi was $49.123 million. And then we represented uh, in 2011, a, uh, or maybe it was 2013, a woman uh, who had done a tour of duty in uh, Iraq. Uh, she was a heavy equipment operator, and 
uh, had actually been under fire in Iraq and came out of the service on the GI Bill and was going to San Francisco State University when she was hit by a light rail vehicle. Again, a, a um, craniotomy case, terrible, terrible brain injury. So she she made it through the Gulf War only to, to end up brain injured by a, a light rail vehicle. And we settled that case for 13.1 million. So I guess my, my words are that Tommy Malone, God bless him, probably has the biggest streak of winning cases in California than any <laughs> California lawyer. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, listen, Randy, we really appreciate it. And I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Randy Scarlett from the Scarlett Law Group uh, based out of San Francisco. And you can look up Randy at scarlettlawgroup.com. Randy, thanks so much. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Randy. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.